Part three, chapters eleven and twelve of Democracy in America, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. Democracy in America, Volume Two by Alexis de Tocqueville, translated by Henry Reeve. Part three, chapter eleven. That the equality of conditions contributes to the maintenance of good morals in America some philosophers and historians have said or have hinted that the strictness of female morality was increased or diminished simply by the distance of a country from the equator this solution of the difficulty was an easy one and nothing was required but a globe and a pair of compasses to settle in an instant one of the most difficult problems in the condition of mankind but i am not aware that this principle of the materialists is supported by facts the same nations have been chased or dissolute at different periods of their history the strictness or the laxity of their morals depended therefore on some variable cause not only on the natural qualities of their country which were invariable i do not deny that in certain climates the passions which are occasioned by the mutual attraction of the sexes are peculiarly intense but i am of opinion that this natural intensity may always be excited or restrained by the condition of society and by political institutions although the travellers who have visited north america differ on a great number of points they all agree in remarking that morals are far more strict there than elsewhere it is evident that on this point the americans are very superior to their progenitors the english a superficial glance at the two nations will establish the fact in england as in all other countries of europe public malice is constantly attacking the frailties of women philosophers and statesmen are heard to deplore that morals are not sufficiently strict and the literary productions of the country constantly lead one to suppose so in america all books novels not excepted suppose women to be chaste and no one thinks of relating affairs of gallantry no doubt this great regularity of american morals originates partly in the country in the race of the people and in their religion but all these causes which operate elsewhere do not suffice to account for it recourse must be had to some special reason this reason appears to me to be the principle of equality and the institutions derived from it equality of conditions does not of itself engender regularity of morals but it unquestionably facilitates and increases it amongst aristocratic nations birth and fortune frequently make two such different beings of man and woman that they can never be united to each other their passions draw them together but the condition of society and the notions suggested by it prevent them from contracting a permanent and ostensible tie the necessary consequence is a great number of transient and clandestine connections nature secretly avenges herself for the constraint imposed upon her by the laws of men this is not so much the case when the equality of conditions has swept away all the imaginary or the real barriers which separated man from woman no girl then believes that she cannot become the wife of the man who loves her and this renders all breaches of morality before marriage very uncommon for whatever be the credulity of the passions a woman will hardly be able to persuade herself that she is beloved when her lover is perfectly free to marry her and does not the same cause operates though more indirectly on married life nothing better serves to justify an illicit passion either to the minds of those who have conceived it or to the world which looks on than compulsory or accidental marriages 
in a country in which a woman is always free to exercise her power of choosing and in which education has prepared her to choose rightly public opinion is inexorable to her faults the rigor of the americans arises in part from this cause they consider marriages as a covenant which is often onerous but every condition of which the parties are strictly bound to fulfil because they knew all those conditions beforehand and were perfectly free not to have contracted them the very circumstances which render matrimonial fidelity more obligatory also render it more easy in aristocratic countries the object of marriage is rather to unite property than persons hence the husband is sometimes at school and the wife at nurse when they are betrothed it cannot be wondered at if the conjugal tie which holds the fortunes of the pair united allows their hearts to rove this is the natural result of the nature of the contract when on the contrary a man always chooses a wife for himself without any external coercion or even guidance it is generally a conformity of tastes and opinions which brings a man and a woman together and this same conformity keeps and fixes them in close habits of intimacy our forefathers had conceived a very strange notion on the subject of marriage as they had remarked that the small number of love-matches which occurred in their time almost always turned out ill they resolutely inferred that it was exceedingly dangerous to listen to the dictates of the heart on the subject accident appeared to them to be a better guide than choice yet it was not very difficult to perceive that the examples which they witnessed did in fact prove nothing at all for in the first place if democratic nations leave a woman at liberty to choose her husband they take care to give her mind sufficient knowledge and her will sufficient strength to make so important a choice whereas the young women who amongst aristocratic nations furtively elope from the authority of their parents to throw themselves of their own accord into the arms of men whom they have had neither time to know nor ability to judge of are totally without those securities it is not surprising that they make a bad use of their freedom of action the first time they avail themselves of it nor that they fall into such cruel mistakes when not having received a democratic education they choose to marry in conformity to democratic customs but this is not all when a man and woman are bent upon marriage in spite of the differences of an aristocratic state of society the difficulties to be overcome are enormous having broken or relaxed the bonds of filial obedience they have then to emancipate themselves by a final effort from the sway of custom and the tyranny of opinion and when at length they have succeeded in this arduous task they stand estranged from their natural friends and kinsmen the prejudice they have crossed separates them from all and places them in a situation which soon breaks their courage and sours their hearts if then a couple married in this manner are first unhappy and afterwards criminal it ought not to be attributed to the freedom of their choice but rather to their living in a community in which this freedom of choice is not admitted moreover it should not be forgotten that the same effort which makes a man violently shake off a prevailing error commonly impels him beyond the bounds of reason that to dare to declare war in however just a cause against the opinion of one's age and country a violent and adventurous spirit is required and that men of this character seldom arrive at happiness or virtue whatever be the path they follow and this it may be observed by the way is the reason why in the most necessary and righteous revolutions it is so rare to meet with virtuous or moderate revolutionary characters 
There is then no just ground for surprise if a man, who in an age of aristocracy chooses to consult nothing but his own opinion and his own taste in the choice of a wife, soon finds that infractions of morality and domestic wretchedness invade his household. But when this same line of action is in the natural and ordinary course of things, when it is sanctioned by parental authority and backed by public opinion, it cannot be doubted that the internal peace of families will be increased by it, and conjugal fidelity more rigidly observed. Almost all men in democracies are engaged in public or professional life, and on the other hand the limited extent of common incomes obliges a wife to confine herself to the house, in order to watch in person and very closely over the details of domestic economy. All these distinct and compulsory occupations are so many natural barriers which, by keeping the two sexes asunder, render the solicitations of the one less frequent and less ardent, the resistance of the other more easy. Not, indeed, that the equality of conditions can ever succeed in making men chaste, but it may impart a less dangerous character to their breaches of morality. As no one has then either sufficient time or opportunity to assail a virtue armed in self-defence, there will be at the same time a great number of courtesans and a great number of virtuous women. This state of things causes lamentable cases of individual hardship, but it does not prevent the body of society from being strong and alert. It does not destroy family ties or enervate the morals of the nation. Society is endangered not by the great profligacy of a few, but by the laxity of morals amongst all. In the eyes of a legislator, prostitution is less to be dreaded than intrigue. The tumultuous and constantly harassed life which equality makes men lead not only distracts them from the passion of love by denying them time to indulge in it, but it diverts them from it by another more secret but more certain road. All men who live in democratic ages more or less contract the ways of thinking of the manufacturing and trading classes. Their minds take a serious, deliberate, and positive turn. They are apt to relinquish the ideal in order to pursue some visible and proximate object, which appears to be the natural and necessary aim of their desires. Thus the principle of equality does not destroy the imagination, but lowers its flight to the level of the earth. No men are less addicted to reverie than the citizens of a democracy, and few of them are ever known to give way to those idle and solitary meditations which commonly precede and produce the great emotions of the heart. It is true they attach great importance to procuring for themselves that sort of deep, regular, and quiet affection which constitutes the charm and safeguard of life, but they are not apt to run after those violent and capricious sources of excitement which disturb and abridge it. I am aware that all this is only applicable in its full extent to America, and cannot at present be extended to Europe. In the course of the last half-century, whilst laws and customs have impelled several European nations, with unexampled force, towards democracy, we have not had occasion to observe that the relations of man and woman have become more orderly or more chaste. In some places the very reverse may be detected. Some classes are more strict the general morality of the people appears to be more lax. I do not hesitate to make the remark, for I am as little disposed to flatter my contemporaries as to malign them. This fact must distress, but it ought not to surprise us. The propitious influence which a democratic state of society may exercise upon orderly habits is one of those tendencies which can only be discovered after a time. If the equality of conditions is favourable, 
to purity of morals, the social commotion by which conditions are rendered equal, is adverse to it. In the last fifty years, during which France has been undergoing this transformation, that country has rarely had freedom, always disturbance. Amidst this universal confusion of notions and this general stir of opinions, amidst this incoherent mixture of the just and unjust, of truth and falsehood, of right and might, public virtue has become doubtful and private morality wavering. But all revolutions, whatever may have been their object or their agents, have at first produced similar consequences. Even those which have in the end drawn the bonds of morality more tightly began by loosening them. The violations of morality which the French frequently witness do not appear to me to have a permanent character, and this is already betokened by some curious signs of the times. Nothing is more wretchedly corrupt than an aristocracy which retains its wealth when it has lost its power, and which still enjoys a vast deal of leisure after it is reduced to mere vulgar pastimes. The energetic passions and great conceptions which animated it heretofore leave it then and nothing remains to it but a host of petty consuming vices, which cling about it like worms upon a carcass. No one denies that the French aristocracy of the last century was extremely dissolute, whereas established habits and ancient belief still preserved some respect for morality amongst the other classes of society. Nor will it be contested that at the present day the remnants of that same aristocracy exhibit a certain severity of morals, whilst laxity of morals appears to have spread amongst the middle and lower ranks, so that the same families which were most profligate fifty years ago are nowadays the most exemplary, and democracy seems only to have strengthened the morality of the aristocratic classes. The French Revolution, by dividing the fortunes of the nobility, by forcing them to attend assiduously to their affairs and to their families, by making them live under the same roof with their children, and in short, by giving a more rational and serious turn to their minds, has imparted to them, almost without their being aware of it, a reverence for religious belief, a love of order, of tranquil pleasures, of domestic endearments, and of comfort, whereas the rest of the nation, which had naturally these same tastes, was carried away into excesses by the effort which was required to overthrow the laws and political habits of the country. The old French aristocracy has undergone the consequences of the revolution, but it neither felt the revolutionary passions nor shared in the anarchical excitement which produced that crisis. It may easily be conceived that this aristocracy feels the salutary influence of the revolution in its manners before those who achieve it. It may therefore be said, though at first it seems paradoxical, that at the present day the most anti-democratic classes of the nation principally exhibit the kind of morality which may reasonably be anticipated from democracy. I cannot but think that when we shall have obtained all the effects of this democratic revolution, after having got rid of the tumult it has caused, the observations which are now only applicable to the few will gradually become true of the whole community. CHAPTER Twelve: HOW THE AMERICANS UNDERSTAND THE EQUALITY OF THE SEXES I have shown how democracy destroys or modifies the different inequalities which originate in society. But is this all, or does it not ultimately affect that great inequality of man and woman which has seemed up to the present day to be eternally based in human nature? I believe that the social changes which bring nearer to the same level the father and son, 
the master and servant, and superiors and inferiors, generally speaking, will raise woman and make her more and more the equal of man. But here, more than ever, I feel the necessity of making myself clearly understood, for there is no subject on which the coarse and lawless fancies of our age have taken a freer range. There are people in Europe who, confounding together the different characteristics of the sexes, would make of man and woman beings not only equal but alike. They would give to both the same functions, impose on both the same duties, and grant to both the same rights. They would mix them in all things, their occupations, their pleasures, their business. It may readily be conceived that by thus attempting to make one sex equal to the other, both are degraded, and from so preposterous a medley of the works of nature nothing could ever result but weak men and disorderly women. It is not thus that the Americans understand that species of democratic equality which may be established between the sexes. They admit that as nature has appointed such wide differences between the physical and moral constitution of man and woman, her manifest design was to give a distinct employment to their various faculties, and they hold that improvement does not consist in making beings so dissimilar do pretty nearly the same things, but in getting each of them to fulfill their respective tasks in the best possible manner. The Americans have applied to the sexes the great principle of political economy, which governs the manufacturers of our age, by carefully dividing the duties of men from those of women, in order that the great work of society may be the better carried on. In no country has such constant care been taken as in America to trace two clearly distinct lines of action for the two sexes, and to make them keep pace one with the other, but in two pathways which are always different. American women never manage the outward concerns of the family, or conduct a business, or take a part in political life. Nor are they, on the other hand, ever compelled to perform the rough labor of the fields, or to make any of those laborious exertions which demand the exertion of physical strength. No families are so poor as to form an exception to this rule. If, on the one hand, an American woman cannot escape from the quiet circle of domestic employments, on the other hand, she is never forced to go beyond it. Hence it is that the women of America, who often exhibit a masculine strength of understanding and a manly energy, generally preserve great delicacy of personal appearance, and always retain the manners of women, although they sometimes show that they have the hearts and minds of men. Nor have the Americans ever supposed that one consequence of democratic principles is the subversion of marital power, or the confusion of the natural authorities and families. They hold that every association must have a head in order to accomplish its object, and that the natural head of the conjugal association is man. They do not, therefore, deny him the right of directing his partner, and they maintain that in the smaller association of husband and wife, as well as in the great social community, the object of democracy is to regulate and legalize the powers which are necessary, not to subvert all power. This opinion is not peculiar to one sex and contested by the other. I never observed that the women of America consider conjugal authority as a fortunate usurpation of their rights nor that they thought themselves degraded by submitting to it. It appeared to me, on the contrary, that they attach a sort of pride to the voluntary surrender of their own will, and make it their boast to bend themselves to the yoke, not to shake it off. Such at least is the feeling expressed by the most virtuous of their sex. The others are silent, and in the United States it is not the practice for a guilty wife to clamour for the rights of women, whilst she is trampling on her holiest duties." 
It has often been remarked that in Europe a certain degree of contempt lurks even in the flattery which men lavish upon women. Although a European frequently affects to be the slave of woman, it may be seen that he never sincerely thinks her his equal. In the United States men seldom compliment women, but they daily show how much they esteem them. They constantly display an entire confidence in the understanding of a wife, and a profound respect for her freedom. They have decided that her mind is just as fitted as that of a man to discover the plain truth, and her heart as firm to embrace it, and they have never sought to place her virtue, any more than his, under the shelter of prejudice, ignorance, and fear. It would seem that in Europe, where men so easily submit to the despotic sway of women, they are nevertheless curtailed of some of the greatest qualities of the human species, and considered as seductive but imperfect beings, and, what may well provoke astonishment, women ultimately look upon themselves in the same light, and almost consider it as a privilege that they are entitled to show themselves futile, feeble, and timid. The women of America claim no such privileges. Again, it may be said that in our morals we have reserved strange immunities to man, so that there is, as it were, one virtue for his use, and another for the guidance of his partner, and that, according to the opinion of the public, the very same act may be punished alternately as a crime or only as a fault. The Americans know not this iniquitous division of duties and rights. Amongst them the seducer is as much dishonoured as his victim. It is true that the Americans rarely lavish upon women those eager attentions which are commonly paid them in Europe, but their conduct to women always implies that they suppose them to be virtuous and refined, and such is the respect entertained for the moral freedom of the sex, that in the presence of a woman the most guarded language is used, lest her ear should be offended by an expression. In America a young unmarried woman may, alone and without fear, undertake a long journey. The legislators of the United States, who have mitigated almost all the penalties of criminal law, still make rape, a capital offence, and no crime is visited with more inexorable severity by public opinion. This may be accounted for, as the Americans can conceive nothing more precious than a woman's honour, and nothing which ought so much to be respected as her independence, they hold that no punishment is too severe for the man who deprives her of them against her will. In France, where the same offence is visited with far milder penalties, it is frequently difficult to get a verdict from a jury against a prisoner. Is this a consequence of contempt of decency, or contempt of women? I cannot but believe that it is a contempt of one and of the other. Thus, the Americans do not think that man and woman have either the duty or the right to perform the same offices, but they show an equal regard for both their respective parts, and though their lot is different, they consider both of them as beings of equal value. They do not give to the courage of woman the same form or the same direction as to that of man, but they never doubt her courage, and if they hold that man and his partner ought not always to exercise their intellect and understanding in the same manner, they at least believe the understanding of the one to be as sound as that of the other, and her intellect to be as clear. Thus, then, whilst they have allowed the social inferiority of woman to subsist, they have done all they could to raise her morally and intellectually to the level of man, and in this respect they appear to me to have excellently understood the true principle of democratic improvement. As for myself, I do not hesitate to avow that, although the women of the United States are confined within the narrow circle of domestic life, and their situation is in some respects one of extreme dependence, I have nowhere seen women occupy a loftier position. 
and if i were asked now that i am drawing to the close of this work in which i have spoken of so many important things done by the americans to what the singular prosperity and growing strength of that people ought mainly to be attributed i should reply to the superiority of their women end of part three chapters eleven and twelve